Hello, countercultural friends. This is Stephen Coates of the Bureau of Lost Culture. Well, lost is an appropriate word for this episode, as you will hear. My guest today is the writer Alan Moore. Now, if you know who Alan is, he really does need no introduction, of course. But if you don't, there is a lot to say. Alan is widely recognised amongst his peers and critics, and the public, of course, as one of the best comic book writers in the English language, with comics like From Hell, Watchmen, V for Vendetta, The Killing Joke, without which, of course, there will be no Dark Knight or Joker, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and Swamp Thing, amongst many others. He's also the author of modern literary classics, including Jerusalem, a 1,200-page experimental epic novel set over centuries and realms in his hometown of Northampton. He's won numerous awards, leading to a cult-like legendary status. He's also an occultist, a ceremonial magician, and an anarchist. I think in some ways he's become something of an underground institution, a polar opposite to the shallowness and crassness of many of our public figures, and the oppressive narcissism of social media. He is famously not online. A link back to something more pagan, perhaps, in our past. More of that in a moment. But this episode is sponsored by London Month of the Dead, our annual festival of death and the arts to inform, entertain and provoke on the subject of mortality and the city. Now in its eighth year, we've just published this October's programme, LondonMonthOfTheDead.com. Over 50 events including talks, walks, workshops, performances, visits to strange parts of the city with an incredible eclectic host of guides, speakers, historians and performers. Check it out. We've also got an online series, so don't worry if you're not in London and if you're listening to this in November or afterwards, we do run things all year too. Speaking of death... They say that three of the most stressful things in life are dying, public speaking and moving house. Well, I haven't experienced the first yet, so I can't speak to that. But public speaking holds no fear for me. As friends would uh, say, I'm perfectly capable of holding forth at length on subjects which I know very little about. But I have just moved house. Oh my God, that was stressful and deeply emotional, going through years worth of goods and chattels, some of which I forgot that I had, forgot that I owned. But there was one bright moment amongst the pain of it all. I found something that I thought I had lost. During lockdown, I interviewed the great author, Michael Moorcock. The first part of that interview is already published. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And I also thought it would be great to hear about Michael from some of his friends and peers, including the writer Alan Moore. Alan agreed, so we had a long conversation one afternoon. Now, he is notoriously private and doesn't use the internet, so as you'll hear, this is a conversation conducted old school style via telephone, hence the audio quality. Uh, and we did talk about Michael Moorcock, and that will come out in a future episode. But we also discussed counterculture at length. 
the part it has played in Alan's life and writing and thoughts, and his thoughts on it, past, present and future. We talked about all sorts of other stuff too, including the Arts Lab. It was a very thought-provoking conversation for me. The only thing is, I lost it. In between lockdown, shuttling back and forth between central London and northern Scotland, getting Covid, going round the bend, I mislaid the hard drive with the recording. I actually thought I'd left it on a train. But in fact, during my recent move, I came across it in the safe place that I'd put it. So there was a silver lining to the Covid cloud. And here is the conversation with Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hi, Stephen. How are you? I'm all right, uh, surfing these strange times. But listen, thanks so much for coming, as, well, joining us remotely, as it were, at the Bureau of Lost Culture. And we're going to dig deep into the one-man multiverse that is Michael Moorcock, um, your friend. Um, but I thought we should start off talking about counterculture. And what is counterculture? I thought maybe you could tell me what you think it is. Well, counterculture has got to be any culture which is raised in opposition to the prevailing culture. But for me, um, it would be the counterculture of the 1960s, uh, which was my first exposure to it. It was this incredible upsurge of, I suppose, suppressed ideas uh, in all sorts of areas. The ideas that had been repressed in politics or in art, in society, in culture, these all came surging back up in a really unruly and fertile form. There were suddenly no limits on what could be thought. This was all given focus by the fact that you know, counterculture, as the name suggests, it's something that is in opposition. And in the 60s, my generation were first getting uh, a grasp of what it was that we were in fierce opposition to. Maybe the counterculture was never as big as it felt for me. If I look back at, say, the school that I was expelled from, you know, 20 or 30 could be described as having countercultural leanings. The vast majority of, I think, any population were mainstream. So I think that the counterculture was always a much smaller phenomenon than it felt, but a much more powerful and influential one. I don't think we realized at the time how explosive a lot of these ideas were or would prove to be. Yeah, could you say more about these the ideas that were being repressed then, pre-60s? Well, say religious ideas. That um, in the 50s, I think both here and in America, then in terms of religion, both of our societies were fairly normative. They had got a sort of strictly defined view of Christianity and that, that defined reality as far as they were concerned. So... In the 60s, all of a sudden, there were these people saying, well, what about Buddhism? What about Hinduism? What about occultism? What about Gnosticism? But, right, so like that massive social changes that were going on in the late 50s and 60s, then that sort of 
took the lid off, it sort of was, there was an explosion of what was now permissible. So what you could write about, what you could say in terms of paintings or drama or music, the lid was taken off. All of these repressed or marginalised ideas that had been there for decades, centuries in some cases, uh, were suddenly available again. And they this, this came along with, I mean, British nationalism, uh, which had probably reached some sort of peak around the Second World War. Um, that was being called into question. And the counterculture was rediscovering um, foreign cultures, uh, different, different lands, different traditions, and was somehow integrating all of these things into this new kind of spontaneous synthesis, uh, which was very heady and very trippy. Um, it, it was a kind of the neurological rush of the counterculture, especially if you were a 13 or 14 year old, I don't think can be overestimated. Yeah. You know, it hits us like a crime. Yeah, I mean, I love that, the neurological rush. I mean, I, one of the things that I've, you know, I'm perennially fascinated by is the idea that there was this kind of palpable sense amongst young people, you know, that that on the brink of something, I mean, the age of Aquarius or whatever you want to call it, some, you know, major changes in virtually every walk of life. And that feels, even at this distance, like it must have been a very, you know, exciting thing to be feeling and being involved with. It's certainly very true to say that there was an enormous weight of expectation uh, that we placed upon ourselves and upon the world. I'm only speaking to myself here, but being tremendously naive, I at first kind of assumed that every generation had a moment like this. I didn't realize that in many ways ours was the first that had had such a moment. I think that we all felt because we were producing beautiful culture and because in terms of ethics, we were obviously right. We assumed that we had somehow um, connected up with some kind of rising godhead, that we were somehow historically inevitable, that the ill-defined age of Aquarius would just somehow happen and the whole world would be different, that our way of doing things and thinking was so obviously right that everybody would see that, and then they would make love and not war and all of these other things that you know we had on our banners and badges. I think that by 1970, after the sort of... Um, kind of punch in the gut that was 1969. Yeah, with like with the Manson murders and the sort of demonization of hippies and then um like the killings at the Rolling Stones concert and this brutal sort of suppression of student demonstrations in America, right? I think we all started to realize with a thinking feeling that it wasn't going to happen. The revolution that we had assumed was just going to be part of our glorious psychedelic destiny. 
that wasn't going to happen. The counterculture reacted in different ways to that. In my own case, it turned out that a lot of the countercultural people, countercultural people around me here in Northampton, a lot of them, it was something that they were doing while they were at school. They grew out of it. They realized at a point that, well, I better start getting serious about having a career and a job. And so they were able to put off all of their countercultural regalia, become, to some degree, functioning parts of society. Uh, a lot That would have probably been more the middle-class element of my friends who had those choices. The working-class friends that I had, which included myself, we didn't have the same choices. Uh, having been expelled from school and then excluded from any kind of university or college or art school, I was pretty much thrown onto my own resources. And this was true of an awful lot of the the working class counterculture people that I'd grown up with. They hadn't got anywhere to go. And so they spent a lot of the 70s in petty crime sort of uh, drug dealing, eking out a living as best they could, but with no sustaining vision. In the early 70s, I think that the, the, the glam rock period with David Bowie and Roxy Music, that was almost an admission that sort of the counterculture isn't going to work and the best look for us would be to be the best-dressed, doomed aesthetes <laughs> at the apocalypse. Love that. The, um, uh, there is that sense in the 70s of it sort of, you know, of much of it, the sort of idealism, the dreaminess of it sort of unwinding. And um, talking to Michael Moorcock, you know, he, he pins, for him, the counterculture ended um, in the Thatcher years. You know, he, he sort of puts it down to that, the kind of massive change in social attitudes that Thatcher sort of imposed or brought about. What about for you? I'd say that in the Thatcher era, which was, what, 79 to 89, something like that, yeah, it was a definite big shift, but there was still a counterculture. Uh, I mean, we had punk from 1976 onwards, and then the things that came after punk, which perhaps lacked the force and energy of punk. But, uh, yeah, things like the, you know, the ska movement and sort of the uh, the new romantic thing, which I was never that big on, but uh, or the dance movement, the rave movement, things like that. These were all counterculture. And, in fact, I'd make the argument that there's only ever been one counterculture that just actually just changes its shoes once in a while. I was around at the beginnings of the punk era. And, and yeah, the people like, I mean, John Lydon, he, before he metamorphosed into Johnny Rotten, he would have been hanging out at Hawkwind gigs in a great coat, dealing acid. In fact, we would have had quite a lot of career overlap um, and, and a lot of wardrobe overlap if we had met at that time. You know, and Malcolm McLaren, 
He'd been, what, burning American flags in Grosvenor Square. He was part of that counterculture thing. He'd come up through the art schools. And to him, I think that punk was a massive situationist prank. These were all the same people. Barney Bubbles, uh, who had done all of those marvellous sleeves for Hawkwind back in the Ladbroke Grove days. He doing all the stuff for Stiff and for all of these other sort of punk concerns. It was, um, you know, Jamie Reed, one of the sweetest blokes I've ever met, who has got his enormous dreadlock down his back, right to his ankles. You know, this man is an old hippie. Although, you know, it's not polite to describe any of us as that because we're so much more. But sort of, yeah, these people who created punk, there's only one counterculture. And I think that that counterculture um, was doing quite nicely until, what, 1990. Yeah, might be right to say that the counterculture didn't really survive Thatcher. But there was counterculture throughout the Thatcher years, and it was only in around 1990, with the end of dance, the end of rave, that sort of uh, we had become accustomed to having a new counterculture along what, roughly every three years with new clothes, new haircuts, new music, new ideas, you know. Uh, so we were just getting quite blase about it by that time. So when Rave came to a halt in about 1990, we sort of thought, okay, well, there'll be something else along in a few months. And then there wasn't. There was nothing until... 1995, when we had the Ertzaps counterculture of Britpop imposed upon us, which was basically a kind of collage of um, English guitar music of the sort of the last 20 or 30 years. It was doing nothing new. It was all about the Kinks or the Beatles, who. There is no bigger fan than I of the Kinks or the Beatles, but Jesus Christ, you know, sort of uh, the people of the 1990s and the 21st century surely deserve a music movement of their own that expresses their reality. And they surely can't put up with endless retreads of you know, the Kinks or the Beatles or, you know, whoever else, David Bowie. To, we, these people were great. To recycle them does them no favours and does us no favours. Right. I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? That sort of um, not to take the spirit of the Beatles or the Kinks or Bowie, but to sort of just sound a bit like them. And uh, that's been a sort of wider thing, hasn't it? The kind of commercial cultural appropriation of the past, you know, through the nostalgia and heritage and vintage industries. You see vintage everywhere. I mean, like uh, the print music magazines, you know, the big ones on Carton Q and all that. You know, the the covers, it's always the same bands, Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin and Jethro Tull and all these from this supposed classic era uh, and of course there's you know there's amazing music 
going on at the moment, as, as there always has been. But there is this sort of strange, maybe it's a comfort thing, you know, to sort of look to the past in a, uh, for sort of some reassurance rather than uh, to, you know, stir things up. But in terms of like, you know, that traditional era of counterculture coming to a close. I wonder as well whether, you know, that does coincide uh, what you were talking about then with the coming of the internet. And I mean, is that is that a coincidence or are those two things linked in some way? The arrival of the internet certainly did something, didn't it? The counterculture, it needs something to crystallise around. There is something about internet culture that is a bit vaporous, that it is not physical. My feeling is that counterculture needs material things to actually coalesce about. I was thinking back to when I was in the first iteration of the Northampton Arts Lab back in the late 60s and early 70s, and we put out seven or eight uh, magazines, poetry magazines and stuff like that. And these would all be typed onto wax stencils, um, which would then be wrapped around the drum of a, I think, a Gestetner printer. Um, And then each page would have to be cranked off by hand. Any illustrations would have to be drawn straight onto the stencil with a a kind of a blunt nail in a plastic stylus holder. Uh, That was basically the level of the kit. You'd scratch a simple design um, onto any spare areas of the stencil. And then, yeah, you'd print all of these off and you'd eventually have the individual pages printed on both sides um, each of them in a little stack around a long table, and you'd have various members of the magazine staff walking around the table, picking up the pages, and you'd have someone at the end with a long-arm stapler. Um, and you'd get about 200 copies out, and then you'd sell them, and you'd get enough money to print the next issue. It was incredibly laborious. It was incredible fun. And it was in many ways, a lot of the basis that the counterculture was depending upon. This is a sidebar about the Arts Lab. The Arts Lab was originally an alternative arts centre founded in 1967 by countercultural legend and uber-networker Jim Haynes at 182 Drury Lane in London. Although only active for two years, it was influential, inspiring many similar centres throughout the UK, continental Europe and Australia, including the Institute of Contemporary Arts, the ICA, in London, that's still going, the Milky Way, the Melkweg in Amsterdam, the Entrepot in Paris, and the Yellow House Artist Collective, founded by Martin Sharp in Sydney. Many of these outlived Jim Haynes' original, which closed in the autumn of 1969. There were over 50 of them in the UK, including the Birmingham Arts Lab, the one in Brighton, 
Exeter, Farnham, Guildford, Huddersfield, Loughborough, Manchester, Southampton, Bath and Northampton. Yoko Ono and Jen Lennon's first joint artwork, Build Around, was exhibited at the Drury Lane Arts Lab in May 1968. David Bowie, who used to rehearse and perform mime at the Drury Lane Arts Lab, co-founded a Beckenham Arts Lab, which organised a one-day free festival. The sun machine is coming down and we're going to have a party. And the first multi-day free festival in the UK, the Cambridge Free Festival, was organised by the Cambridge Arts Lab in 1969. Alan Moore, as we will hear, was involved with many activities, including poetry in the Northampton Arts Lab. But what was an arts lab anyway? In the October 1969 edition of International Times, Jim Haynes said, I feel that an arts lab has the following characteristics. A. A lab is an energy centre where anything can happen depending on the needs of the people running each individual lab and the characteristics of the building. B. A lab is a non-institution. We all know what a hospital, theatre, police station and other institutions have in the way of boundaries. But a lab's boundaries should be limitless. C. Within each lab, the space should be used in a loose, fluid, multi-purpose way, i.e. a theatre can be a restaurant, a gallery, a bedroom, a studio, etc. D. I'm interested in creating a fluid commune situation where a group of people live and work together. At the Covent Garden Lab, we have 15 to 20 people who live and work together seven days a week. No one's paid. From each, according to his abilities, to each, according to his needs. We have space, food, ideas, work. Now may I say something about politics? People ask me if the arts lab is political. Anyone who is interested in changing anyone's attitudes to anything is committing a political act. We, the Covent Garden Lab, have certain philosophical attitudes to the world and we hope to show others by word and deed that these political philosophical attitudes can be transmitted via non-traditional political media. Every person is a medium. Use it carefully. As for art, we're more interested in bringing people together in a real, involved way. Not very interested in marketing art, or anything for that matter. Here, here, bring them back, I say. Poetry magazines. There was a poetry underground. The people like Jeff Nuttall, who were publishing these brilliant little magazines, who were, you know, they were corresponding with William Burroughs and he was doing little articles for them, Bill Butler, all of these people. Um, and it was all little kind of self-printed magazines a lot of the time. When modern kind of computer technology arrived, I was looking at it and I was thinking, my God, I would have killed, we would have killed without a moment's thought for something like that where we could have laid out beautiful layouts and sort of we could have printed it all up ourselves sort of without cranking a handle and stencils and it could have been in color and it could have been beautifully professional looking and wow and now you know people have got the opportunity to do all that uh, and the same thing goes with with music i remember in the in the 70s when the punk explosion was happening, a lot of my friends were forming punk bands, were getting to some little studio and were getting enough money to actually record a single and then were bringing the single out on a little label that they'd made up. 
Um, and that was, that was incredible. I mean, now with people able to do really ambitious multi-tracked recordings in their own bedroom, yet there is some wonderful work being done. But uh, when you think about the resources that we had musically in the 1960s and what we did with them, you know, when you, I mean, what, Sergeant Pepper, was that an eight track? Or was it a four track? Two four tracks strapped together. Two four tracks. Something like that. Something ridiculous. Because when you've got restrictions, for some reason, you, you, you fight against them harder. Yeah, to- totally, totally. I mean, you know, uh, I, I love all that stuff, you know, hearing you talk about the Arts Lab and, you know, making things yourself, that sort of DIY ethos. Of course, it was through the punk era too. And, you know, making physical things, that's the thing too, isn't it? As, I mean, talking to Ian Sinclair, for instance, you know, um, who's obviously another friend of yours and, you know, uh, gets published by major publishers, but he still loves doing small editions of poetry, limited editions, you know, with private presses and little uh, self-published stuff as well. And there is something rather magical still about that, I think. I mean, you're totally right with regards to, say, music production. Um, I mean, it's incredible what you can actually do now at home. And that is a wonderful thing. And I certainly wouldn't turn the clock back myself. I've benefited from it personally. At the same time, when you can do anything, what do you do? And it's quite interesting that, say, music... Now, you know, there's, there's music production courses where you can you know, get really deep into software and all that stuff. And I'm not criticising it because maybe there's some great stuff coming out. But my feeling quite often is that some of the most interesting things are made by people who don't really know what they're doing. They, they Maybe they've got the software or they've got the machines and stuff, but they haven't read the instruction manual and they haven't been on a course and they're just tinkering uh, and, you know, fighting against the restrictions. And then interesting stuff pops out. And I wonder for you, one of the things that Michael Moorcock said that links you and him is that he described you both as self-taught. You know, you didn't go through the conventional uh, education system. Both, I think, left school kind of quite early, maybe under a cloud or whatever. Um, But uh, that you were effectively autodidact, that there was something about in your work that is to do with that. Is that the case? Yeah. <laughs> I, I even taught myself the word autodidact. It's not something you're born knowing, is it? Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. It's important to the way that our minds developed. Our minds did not develop according to regulation tram lines along which our lines were meant to develop. We were free of a university education for various reasons. And so we were educating ourselves from the culture that was around us, which at that time was considerable. Now, I I think that it's important. I think that most of the people that I respect um, are are autodidacts. I've heard people say that, oh, well, autodidacts, they, they can be very narrow in their thinking. No, I think it's rather the other way around. One of the things that I think is a huge benefit to the autodidact is that they can actually connect up their different 
areas of knowledge. Um, they are not forced to specialize into increasingly narrow areas of study that will prepare them for their increasingly narrow professions. I think that the thing is with autodidacts is that they can actually connect up their different areas of information and allow the ideas to interbreed and can come up with new ideas as a result. Yeah, I mean, with Michael, I mean, you know, his, uh, uh, you know, his work is so complex and all over the place, isn't it? With all these different layers, a multiverse, in fact. You know, one of the things that he said, that's why um, he thinks there's nothing satisfactory ever been made. Ad- adaptations of his books uh, into film, for instance. And I think you said the same, too, about uh, your work, right? I mean, I've not seen any of the films that have been made of my works because it would just be too horrible an experience. They, they, they have to sort of smooth so many edges and rough projecting sort of bumps and irregularities off of these characters that you'll end up with a kind of a gesture at the character. You know, all right, he's an albino, he's got a big black sword. And he looks depressed a lot of the time. So that'll be Elric. The thing is, these things weren't written as films. They were written to take advantage of the things that literature can do. (sighs) Yet sometimes it can work, you know, but generally it doesn't. I mean, like the the adaptations of um, Gormenghast, say, which uh, is obviously a book that, and I'm sure Mort Moorcock could tell you the same, that um, is completely dependent upon Mervyn Peake's writing. Because you are creating these characters, whether it's Steer Pike or Fuchsia, or whether it's Elric or Jerry Cornelius, the audience is creating those characters. Those characters are always going to be personal to the individual audience member. They've read them in a book. They've got a vague picture of them in their mind. They kind of know them. They've got, an, they've got a personal relationship with these figures. So if you suddenly get some actor pretending to be them in a film, bizarrely, even though the actor is a real flesh and blood person, that can never be the real character. The real character is the one on the printed page. How wonderful things that cinema can do. For my money, most of those are things that have been created specifically for cinema. And the same goes for comics, the same goes for books, the same goes for everything. Great stuff. Um, Alan, we are approaching the end, and there's just a couple more things I wanted to drop in. I mean, um, I think we mentioned it earlier, but uh, in terms of like countercultural activity, the other thing which has been quite refreshingly alive in recent years is the activism aspect, isn't it? Because, um, you know, we've had uh, the Occupy movement, about a decade ago now, and uh, you know, recently Black Lives Matter, but also um, Extinction Rebellion, and it's that if that aspect of counterculture is still alive and kicking, isn't it? Yeah, I've done stuff with the occupied people. I've done stuff with Extinction Rebellion because, yes, I think that this is this is a meaningful modern counterculture. This is something that is vital, is necessary. I just wish that there was more culture to support it. 
that in the 60s, what was important was that it was all happening at once. There was this fairly ephemeral pop entertainment, but it was all somehow playing into this overall progressive political agenda. Um, these days, we have got the progressive political agenda. You know, the people at Extinction Rebellion and movements like Occupy, you know, they are obviously uh, an important force. I just wish that there was more counterculture to give them nourishment and to give them support. But uh, but yes, I would agree that uh, that is those are significant modern faces of, yeah. of counterculture. Yeah, and also just to mention as well that um, fairly recently, pre-pandemic, um, you were an instrumental in the renaissance of the Northampton Arts Lab. Uh, so it isn't just a thing of the past, that actually is going on still for, for well, you there, isn't Well, it? I mean, wh- when we, we actually did a, a symposium up in Northampton that was called uh, Under the Austerity, the Beach, um, and it was just talking about the lack of a counterculture. And at the end of it, um, we had lots of speakers there, like Scroobius Pip and sort of people like that. But at the end of it, I sort of said, look, if, has anybody got any questions? And there was a, a lady sitting in the front row. And she said, yes, does anybody know how I can not go home to a life where I feel that nobody has these ideas but me? And I said, mm, well, that, that is a good question. Um, uh, maybe if anybody would like to carry this stuff on further, we'll see what happens. So in the, I think the December following that, we had a bunch of people uh, who'd responded, and we sort of, so we all got together for a meeting. After we'd talked about it, we decided that we wanted to be some sort of arts-based group and I suggested calling it an arts lab, but I said I quite understand if that's got too much 1960s baggage for all of you young people. So we spent the first meeting deciding what we were going to call ourselves and not getting anywhere. The second meeting, which was in January 2016, which was fucking freezing, and also uh, David Bowie had just died. As opposed to the 25 people we'd had at the first meeting, there were only about five people at the second meeting, but which meant that I could organise a coup. So I said, I think that we should call ourselves Northampton Arts Lab because that's what David Bowie would have wanted. <laughs> so we became the Northampton Arts Lab because it is what David Bowie would have wanted. Definitely. And um, the thing is, you can just do that. You can just get together with a few like-minded people. It's so easy to do, and it's such a lot of fun, and it is the very heart of counterculture. People getting together and creating culture of their own. If counterculture is anywhere, it's in things like that. There, there were a few arts labs that sprung up across the country after we have got the one going in Northampton again. It's a possibility. And that's always been where counterculture is nested. It's nested in its possibility, in its kind of imminence. All it would take is for a bunch of people to get together 
and decide that they were going to put out a magazine or that they were going to put on a performance or a poetry reading. That's all it takes. Artland, thanks so much. And thank you very much for coming to join us at the Bureau of Lost Culture. Well, it looks for everybody and it's been my pleasure. See you down the road. Well, there you go. Thanks so much to Alan for his time and to Joe, who's helped set that conversation up. Alan is very protective of his time and creative process. As I mentioned, he doesn't use the internet. We did meet in person at an event uh, a few years ago in Brompton Cemetery, and I can tell you, as I'm sure you realised from that conversation, he really is very humble, kind and generous. If you want to learn storytelling from him, there is currently a 33-hour course on BBC Maestro. It's amazing. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. This conversation was very thought-provoking for me. I suppose in a way it validated the point of this show. But it also made me think what else I can do to keep counterculture alive. I've committed myself to music and arts and culture, and it's quite precarious at times, as I'm sure you can realise. Thanks to Patrick, Suki, Jim, John, The Alchemist, Deep Fried Sam and Roger, who helped support our wild endeavours this month. We appreciate that. We'd love to expand what we do, so maybe you can join them. Join us, bureauoflostculture.com, or share these programmes with your countercultural friends. And do check out our sponsor, our countercultural festival, LondonMonthOfTheDead.com. We're going to finish with a track by the artist known as The Real Tuesday World, who's been soundtracking some of these conversations. This is Last Light from their upcoming album, Dreams. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 